and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. My guest today is Dr. James Lindsay. You have seen him on here before. He is, in my opinion, one of the most important and best voices in the defense of liberty, which I believe is gravely at stake currently. However, we did have a small win this week uh, with the withdrawal of the proposed rules for the NACs. NAC, which stands for Natural Asset Company. And uh, if you've been following, I did quite the uh, attempt to sound the alarm. And I'm so grateful for everybody who did submit comments because this is proof that our voices can be heard. There can be a ripple effect. But I think this is just, you know, a battle. And I think this uh, means we must stay vigilant because they're going to rebrand, retool, and uh, keep going forward. But he was actually one of the first people who made me even aware that this was an issue. I had never heard of it before. I know there were people who were sounding the alarm a while ago, and uh, I've gone back and done some research. This was obviously not new. There's a long history to it. Um, so, I, which is why I think they're going to keep going and uh, we need to stay really vigilant. So without further ado, Dr. James Lindsay, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm pretty good. <laughs> well, there was a delay there. Good. Well, thank you so much for being here. So yeah, <laughs> maybe we can start with just giving a little bit. Firstly, thank you. Really, you were, you know, really a like strong soldier in this battle. And I do think, you know, as, as I said, I, it's certainly just a part of, of everything that's going on, just a part of their plan. But I think that stopping this was a huge win because if they can get the land, they can force us to come to our knees and they can, they have much more control over us. So, yeah. So what, what are your thoughts on, uh, what, what this, what this was intended for, where they're going to go next and what we should do? Yeah. Well, um, you're absolutely right that this has a longer history and they literally they really tried to sneak it under the radar. Um, I actually became aware of it by reading a piece in the Wall Street Journal by the treasurer of the state of Utah named Marlo Oaks. And Marlo is great and really took up, in a sense, the lead on this fight. Uh, I know other people like uh, Margaret Bywater have been fighting it for a while, too, uh, maybe kind of almost from the beginning. But for several years, they've been building out this program under the radar and they had it down to where the rule was to be decided. And a handful of state treasurers, including Marlowe in Utah, raised enough of an alarm to get the attention of a couple of senators. This is back in maybe August and September. And the senators asked some questions of the SEC that caused them to pause and delay this until it was supposed to be January 2nd. And then um, further complaints right before Christmas uh, again, led by Marlowe and with that article in the Wall Street Journal, uh, were able to get this to get comments reopened and to get this pushed out until what was supposed to be um, the 18th of January. Uh, but then on the 16th, the New York Stock Exchange, which was pushing it in the first place, withdrew the proposed rule change so the SEC didn't have to decide on it. In other words, we defeated this uh, this effort, which they tried to like I said, sneak past the goalpost while we weren't watching. Uh, yeah. And thank goodness for the vigilance of people like Marlo Oaks and Margaret Bywater, who have been keeping an eye on this. I played, I guess, a role in this, but I consider it to be a small role. I was alerted to the issue, and I did a few threads on Twitter immediately after Christmas talking about it, That uh, and maybe a little before Christmas, that that raised the alarm. And it got a mm -hmm. lot of people involved. People saw yeah. that this really is a... Prof profound concern. 
um, that this idea of a new kind of company that manages natural assets, by which they mean don't use them, don't extract, <laughs> don't extract food, energy, minerals, or whatever from from land or water, and they they can they can make some kind of a, a whole new asset class. It's it's less about the companies themselves and then more about the fact that they've created an entire new asset class. And I have an analogy, I think, that'll help people understand it. But behind mm -hmm. that, even even worse than that, they've created a kind of what, what I've, I've been referring to as voodoo accounting. Now they call it ecological accounting. That's what it's, I call it, too. Right, There's and, no other way to explain it. <laughs> so this is the way that it'll proceed. They're not, while they've given up on the proposed rule change about natural asset companies, they certainly have not given up on the idea of ecological reporting for corporations uh, to the federal government and to other entities, for example. They certainly haven't given up on ESG, which would have turned into a type, an asset class uh, with yeah. this with this creation of company. And they certainly are not giving up on the voodoo accounting, the ecological accounting. And here's how this works. And, and so imagine that you know, you have land under your management and there's a river on that land and that river or a lake or what doesn't matter, some body of water and it contains fish, right? Mm -hmm. So normally, if you want to go catch the fish and sell them, it's on your land or you have access to the waterways or whatever, that's fine. You can do that. So you get mm -hmm. your tackle and you get your boat and you get your, your fuel and everything else. Those are all the material costs that go in to extracting the fish. You have your time, your skill, your effort, your labor, everything that goes into catching the fish. Those all have material value. And so you go out and you catch some fish and you bring them back and you sell the fish appropriately according to how much investment it costs you and what the market value of the fish is. And the goal is to try to make money off the fish. Well, you don't pay the lake for the fish. And what this voodoo accounting does is asks the question, well, how much in material value is the fish being in the lake worth to the lake? And of course, they just make up some stupid number that's probably huge and say, well, you maybe can pull that fish out and it's worth $50 at the market and you can judge whether that goes against your material costs. But to the lake, because of the ecological issues surrounding fish in the lake or whatever, that fish is actually worth like $4.3 million. And so obviously they're not going to charge you to pull the fish out, but what they're going to do is that they're going to create this new asset that's worth $4.3 million that relates to the value of fish staying in the lake. And they're going to trade those assets and it's going to work largely like the carbon credit scam to uh, allow them to make money off of preventing people from using the, the, the land based off of completely bogus accounting scams. And that's, the best analogy I've come up with so far for how it kind of would work in practice. Um, they're trying to answer the question, how much is nature worth to nature right. to be left alone, unmolested energy resources, food, and so on unextracted. Um, and this voodoo accounting, they were estimating what the reason I said a very big number, like $4.3 million for fish wasn't to be silly. It's because they were claiming that they would be able to identify and to classify 100 to $150 trillion a year in natural asset value to the environment, uh, up to a total of, I'm not kidding, $5,000 trillion, five yep, quadrillion dollars, which is um, so far beyond the comprehension of, of 
of normal people as to to be meaningless. Uh, it's just a fantastical amount of money. And that's exactly what they were going to do is create that value for themselves in these companies out of thin air through this voodoo accounting that says, well, nature is worth a lot to nature in and of itself, uh, unmolested, left alone, unextracted. And so we, the enlightened managers of that land, are going to uh, be able to recognize that value by refusing to allow that land to be developed or used in any productive capacity. Um, and so it's not exactly that they're going to like tax people or charge people for whatever they extract out of the land. They're just going to say, it's worth way more to us for you not to be allowed to do that. Um, so you can't do that. And then they're going to go trade that bogus value on the stock exchange. And in, in essence, turn that into real money where it's not real money, including by selling things like carbon credits or their extension, kind of uh, ecological you know, maintenance credits, whatever they would call them. I'm making up a term. I don't know what they would call them. But this kind of thing has been I think stopped. they call them ecosystem management services. I think that's the term. Right. But, yeah. And so what this, this has been stopped in this specific, but we can expect that this is going to continue. Imagine that you are sitting there on a scam that's going to make you five quadrillion dollars. <laughs> You're not about to just walk away from that. Uh, and the, in addition to the money, it creates an incredible reservoir of power for them to manage that land. But then the downstream effects of managing the land and waterways are incredible because you can decide that it's worth you know, we can say that you you have under management of a network of natural asset companies, most of the land of Idaho and Utah, parts of Nevada and down into Arizona, maybe the Colorado River Basin, for example. I might have my rivers mixed up, but we'll pretend I have the right river. And um, you have that under your management and you decide, well, we have to really limit how much water people can use because of this natural asset accounting, this voodoo ecological accounting, we're using way too much water. So we've got to restrict the amount of water. Well, now you can generate something like a water crisis over these, you know, high desert and even low desert areas and then say, well, here's the thing. We don't know how much water people are using and we want people to have enough water and you want to have enough water and we don't want to price gouge you for the water. So if everybody just installs a smart meter on their house, we can know exactly how much water people are using and manage that and start to limit, you know, to a reasonable and fair ration of water, what everybody can use so that we can manage this natural resource more responsibly. And now all of a sudden you have a smart meter on your house that's collecting data on your uh, resource usage, in this case, water, but it could be other things. And that can be turned off by computer remotely. So they can just shut your water off. I mean, technically they could drive over to your water and turn it off with a, with a wrench, but uh, you could also go back out and turn it back on with a wrench. If you have the right wrench, this, they could by computer shut your meter down so that water won't go through it until you comply with whatever they want. So they can manufacture resource crises, energy crisis, food crisis by controlling farmland and fisheries, um, the, the water crisis that I was just describing and use those crises to pressure people into adopting tyrannical measures upon themselves. So you could expect farmers, foresters, miners, energy developers, 
all to start to get squeezed out of the market. And so I know uh, Mar Margaret Bywater points this out a lot, that the ultimate purpose of these natural asset companies is to create a gigantic reservoir of fake assets so that they have tremendous amounts of power so that they can squeeze everybody out of the market, monopolize those land resources to themselves. And then the big trick of the whole thing, the whole rule change that was proposed was if they, vi let's say they have their land and they decide to start cutting down trees and mining. So now they're doing forestry and mining, which are not allowable activities as a natural asset company. The only thing that happens is they get delisted. Their only punishment, there's no fines, there's nothing. So they, they, usurp all the land, squeezing farmers, foresters, miners, and so on out of the market. They take that squeeze, they buy land for pennies on the dollar, they get extraordinarily cheap land. And when they've squeezed everybody out and they own the, the vast majority of the land and kind of monopolize it, well, then they can just violate their own rules and start developing it, but they own it all. So all of a sudden, what they've really done is, as the Soviets would have it, dekulakized the especially Western landmass of North America. They've gotten rid of the rugged farmers, the rugged individuals. Kulaks are rugged individuals. They were people who could farm, people who could mine, people who could take care of themselves in their communities. Well, you get rid of all of that and put it under central authority uh, this way very easily. And that central authority, of course, is this oligarchical network of corporations that have been blessed to lead us through the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah. Wow. That was very well said. And I love those analogies. I mean, I, I keep saying how I used to make the joke, uh, you know, when they were taking up all the, the water and, you know, uh, expanding all these bottled water companies like Nestle. And I used to make the joke that the next they were going to commodify the air and regulate the air we breathe and then sell it back to us. Uh, yeah. But here we are. That's literally what That's they want to do. It. Paul Merrick <laughs> joked at the uh, FLCCC conference last year, the, the national conference they held. Paul Merrick, Dr. Paul Merrick is mm -hmm. one of the uh, COVID frontline mm -hmm. COVID critical yeah, care doctors. He actually doctors. brought me to the uh, thing they did in uh, D.C., Right. Yeah. He's probably the most prominent critical care physician in the world. And he yeah. made a joke that if they could figure out how to commodify the sunlight, they would do that too and sell it back to you as trying. a drug. Yeah. And so, <laughs> well, when we all live underneath a complete layer of solar panels, maybe they can do that. The, the solar panels that drip poison on us and don't work. But um, yeah, this is this was basically kind of the plan is to be able to yeah. gain complete management over those lands and put it in uh, corporate oligarchical hands um, so that they can literally codify the so-called sustainable agenda. But then whenever they decide to get rich off of it, they can drop that agenda with no particular consequence. Right. Yeah. So they did withdraw. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, definitely thanks to people like you who are sounding the alarm. Uh, I, I think that that is proof that, yeah, here's the letter. Uh, this was January 17th, and so they withdrew the application to have it listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, so firstly, I just want to say for everybody listening that this proves that our voices can have a ripple effect, and it is important for us to stand up against these kinds of things because we can make a difference. If nothing else, kick it down the road. And I think there's power in that because if we kick it down the road, you know, it's a it's like if you're in any kind of a war, if you're in a battle and you're able to delay and push off your your enemy, then you have a chance to regroup, re-strategize and potentially, you know, find a way to defeat them. So I think that that's good. I also think that, you know, anything we can do to slow down this, uh, you know, takeover is a good thing. But as you had mentioned, yeah, if you've got five quadrillion on the table, you're probably not going to say, oh, okay, we'll just let that go. So <laughs> uh, I'm wondering what, 
so I'm wondering what you think their next steps will be, how they'll, you know, possibly redirect this and try and sneak this through. Because as you pointed out, they did try to sneak this through. They tried to do it during Christmas, much like, you know, the Federal Reserve giving us our income tax as a Christmas present, you know, seems to be their MO. Yeah, yeah well, um, there are a few guesses as to what uh, might come next. And since, by the way, you mentioned Nestle, Nestle was part of the, you had it on the screen for a moment, the intrinsic exchange group that was also heavily funded by the Rockefeller Foundation that led to the, that was the organization that led to the development of the natural asset company that then, so we already know how Nestle mismanages water to its own advantage, uh, that was then going to, um, you know, was delivered to the New York Stock Exchange as this grand idea for them to make buku bucks off of uh, voodoo accounting. And then that's where the proposed rule to the SEC came from. So if you trace it backwards, Nestle was involved in the creation of these. So the analogy to Nestle isn't frivolous It's or, or just kind of insightful. It's literally at the core, the, the way that if you want a real glimpse of how the management of these natural assets would work. Look how Nestle cheated people with water and then look at how uh, it would actually turn that into rather than them doing all kinds of kind of misfeasance, turn it into literally a scam where they get to make maybe trillions of dollars off of that behavior instead. And so that's what is at the heart of that that nasty trick. Now, what are they going to do? Well, they have a handful of alternatives. Mm-hmm. Or they'll probably try some of all of these. One, of course, is the thing, and I'm, I think that the most hopeful sign is the, in this whole story, because this is happening with DEI right now as well. It's not just happening with the natural asset company thing, is that DEI, if you haven't noticed, is collapsing. Um, corporations and so on are pulling their DEI sites and rewriting them. You have politicians saying that they're backing off, but they're just trying to replace it with something that works the same way with a different name. I, I sorry, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I I don't know if I told you the story of uh, we went to this like C suite event with you know a bunch of like corporations and uh, you know they 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 brand themselves as entrepreneurs. They're really just like big corporate people, yeah. and their big complaint was how uh, DEI was not the huge success that they thought it would be. And there was this, I, I mean, it was like hours long of strategizing how will we rebrand DEI. DEI. Yeah, How right. can we make this palatable to the masses? And so rebranding is yeah. right. Rebranding is one of their techniques. And so um, we can expect that with a natural asset company. So with DEI, the two that I've seen are inclusive excellence, which has fooled nobody, and equity and restorative justice, which also has fooled nobody. Well, what I would expect is that we're going to see various, much more corporate, much more kind of tedious to read through rebrandings of whatever the natural asset company pieces were that still rely on the ecological accounting and following up into the next part, ecological reporting um, mechanisms. So what they're going to do is keep the essence, try to change the name and try to blow it past people, which um, why I'm so encouraged lately is we're on to them with that everywhere that never works. They say, we're going to change the name of DEI. Everybody's like, you're going to change the name of DEI. You're not going to fool us again. We're going to change the name of CRT to culturally responsive teaching. It fooled people at first. That was a couple of years ago. Now it's fooling nobody. And so these things are, this name change, branding change game isn't working out for them anymore because we've caught on to that being their bread and butter. 
So it'll be actually to their detriment when they attempt it, so long as we're vigilant enough to catch it, how they present it under a new branding. What's more concerning is that they're going to, uh, as I just mentioned, they're going to double down into what's called ecological reporting. So the voodoo accounting is going to be at the back of this, and they're going. People are going to be people who have land or assets, farms, mines, and so on, are going to be pressured to do ecological reporting. That's then going to be calculated through their voodoo accounting to find out, you know, what a big problem they are. I don't know what levers they will press through right. ecological accounting, but I'm sure that, or through, I'm sorry, ecological reporting. But I'm right. sure that the reporting isn't being done for no reason. They're going to force corporations to report to entities that are under federal government management and probably these kind of globalist programs like the ESG manipulation uh, from World Economic Forum and BlackRock that facilitates the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And they're just going to keep pushing in those directions. Um, That's what I think they're going to do. And it's going to be our job to stay vigilant for the name changes and to dig deeper into what was underneath NACs, which is in fact this ecological accounting and reporting scheme, maybe they can't turn them into assets directly or quickly or easily now, but they can still force all kinds of behaviors through reporting and through uh, ESG requirements for capital and so on. And so we're going to have to do two things. One is be vigilant for the name change and mock them when they try it on us and blow it out of the water immediately which will be greatly to their detriment. And secondly, we have to um, dig deeper. The exposure of both of those tactics has to be at the front. And we mock the name change and we pull out how they're really trying to create, again, five quadrillion dollars of bogus assets, what the earth is worth to the earth uh, in some sense. Right. Um, so with the name change, if we have it, I want to pull up the regenerative because that was something I got a huge pushback on. And I think that is probably, I mean, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I suspect that because people are recognizing how much they've polluted the soil, the food, and people are really trying to go back to that sort of more organic, regenerative type of practices, or at least encourage and support them. Uh, so of course, I think they're going to co-opt the name of it. So yeah, if we scroll down to this, I want to just get to the definition. So they, they talk about how it might work. So um, they have, let me see if I can find it and I can read it where I can see it better. Um, I don't see that well, but okay. Yeah. Here. So how it works. So they're, they, they had like two steps. Um, and maybe I'm sorry if we can go back up a little bit, they, they, they had the two steps. So one was like the more traditional is, you know, what regenerative typically means, right? The regenerative agricultural, and then they break it down and then they're like, okay, what it used to mean. And then what it means now. And, uh, what it means now is all these, uh, you know, like supporting the biodiversity was one of them. Um, what is the other one? I don't know if I can find it. Let's see. Okay, yeah, how it works here. So promotion of biodiversity, tillage avoidance, reducing agrochemical, intensive uh, grazing management. So all of those things sound good. Um, maybe it was further down in that. Um, so, okay, I think this was... Uh, Maybe I can't find it. I apologize. Maybe I'll just post it as a link for people to read. But 
when I looked at it, like they taught, they broke down the two like categories. And one was the traditional meaning of the word where it used to be, you know, just the, uh, you know, not using the chemical. But then the second one was to um, essentially to get to the net zero. And so right. it didn't have to include, uh, they, they, they use the difference between like, uh, you know, herbicides versus uh, some of the like chemical nitrogen fertilizers. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So they were, but it's, it's a very sneaky cause it, yeah, I mean, like I don't fully know exactly how it all works, but they're obviously trying, they're, they're saying it doesn't necessarily mean what we traditionally think it means. So right. I'll post a link for that, but yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Well, I can say that the United Nations, as we see on the screen now, but also yep. um, the World Economic Forum have been publishing for you know the last five or six years, lots of these kinds of reports, uh, mm-hmm. rethinking food systems. Let me see if I have the World Economic Forum stuff right in front of me. Nature risk rising, why the crisis engulfing nature matters for business and the economy. The Future of Nature and Business Policy Companion. These are World Economic Forum white papers, The Future of Nature and Business. And so what what it's actually, what th- this is a funny little thing that if they're tapping into regenerative farming, which is considered to be, you know, kind of a general good and people understand yeah. it to be one thing, and then changing it to mean this, you know, other program that's the Sustainable Development Goals and whatever else, yeah. or 30 by 30, maybe the, you know, other United Nations agenda then they're going to be able to recreate a lot of the effects of the natural asset companies uh, without necessarily, you know, making the crazy money off of it. Although they'll come up with scams and schemes and Ponzi schemes, basically, that they're going to be able to make tons of money off of it somewhere along the lines. What I see when I see this is, in fact, the segue into the degrowth communist model um, when it's talking about this soil mismanagement and the chemical fertilizers and everything, uh, Karl Marx had this concept that he called metabolic rift. He actually wrote about this in the third volume of Capital, which never got finished in his lifetime. It was right. at the very end of his life, and I think in the 1880s is when he died. And um, he was not content with 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 this you know book when when he died. But uh, the idea of meta- metabolic rift is that metabolic refers to the idea that we're consuming nature and excreting back into nature, whether we're breathing out or going to the bathroom or whatever it happens to be. We have a metabolic relationship with nature where we're consuming and bringing into our body nature. And then from our bodies, it goes back into nature in in a kind of a cycle. Now that's actually true. We know about the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle and the water cycle and all these cycles. Um, but what he thought was that the way that we were organizing society was going to cause a rift. People were moving, bourgeois society was moving more and more away from nature. So in particular, in this particular uh, instance, what, what, he would been, what he did talk about was that farming is growing lots of crops and doing whatever it does and extracting value from the soil. And then it's exporting the crops off to the city. And so then all of the waste products, the manures and the whatever else all the nitrogen that comes back out eventually in our metabolic relationship is being removed from that soil and then exported and never gets put back into the soil. And so the soil is being depleted and this is going to call it, cause it's a rift in the metabolism that we have with nature. By the way, Marx in his earliest writings, so this is his latest writing, but in his earliest writings, he said that nature is man's inorganic body. And so we're actually, what he was expressing, part of nature, and nature is part of us. We are actually one with nature. It's a very, actually, holistic Gnostic religion. 
And what he was saying is that this metabolic rift problem caused by capitalism leads us to break that relationship with nature, which would eventually be to our calamity. Now, Engels had a different analysis of it. Engels' analysis was that there would be the revenge of nature. It was going to, you know, this this rift would get so bad that eventually, you know, we would, like the Club of Rome says, overshoot and have a collapse. Marx didn't see it quite that way. Uh, he saw it as yet another opportunity while calamity might come along for another opportunity to uh, awaken uh, the people to an ecological side to Marxism. Uh, focused on the planet, which we hear all the time. The World Economic Forum lady the other day was talking about us committing an ecocide or or killing nature, blah, blah, blah. We're all very familiar with how the, the environmentalist movement is really environmental Marxism. But the solution to metabolic rift is supposed to be, according to them, degrowth. So that's what NACs, that's what ESG, that's what the Sustainable Development Goals, that's what Agenda 2030 and the further Agenda 2050, that's what 30 by 30, all of these agendas point at that exact same place, is that to avoid metabolic rift, we have to preserve our inorganic body in nature, make it whole, make it healthy, and that's to the benefit of, of everybody but it means like certain consequences. So we have to rethink food systems. We have to rethink agriculture. We have to rethink food itself. We have to move into cities. We have to put land in under natural management uh, so that it can be um, in the nature and in relationship with itself the way it's you know meant to be or whatever, so that all of these regenerative things can happen. And so what what we're seeing is that you have a genuine farming practice that's for real. And then you have a Marxist agenda that is a misinterpretation of that. And of course, they would use the same word for both of those things and <laughs> right. let people believe that they're doing the good thing while they're actually pushing the bad thing. Degrowth is a death cult. It will kill billions of people, probably by design. Energy scarcity will lower our standard of living. But in practice, that means what we almost just saw Alberta virtually, you know, by a hair missed it. And uh, thanks, in fact, to to Scott Moe that they didn't. And we saw the warnings across Texas. I know you're in Tennessee. I'm in Tennessee. I got the warnings from the Tennessee Valley Authority. Hey, guys, it's really cold. Use less energy so we don't have yep. energy crisis. And Texas, it was worse. It's like, uh, no, guys, build. A, you don't ask me to be responsible when you're being irresponsible you aren't doing your part to generate electricity or energy correctly because of these stupid sustainable development goals and these United Nations agendas. So you don't have any authority to ask me to cut back on my consumption, even if it's a really good idea. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. It turns out in our house we did, but largely for other reasons. What happened in Alberta, though, it's estimated that thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Albertan, Albertans would have frozen to death in the dark in this cold snap, this polar vortex or whatever it is, it just descended across North America because it was temperatures close to minus 40. Uh, their energy grid, which is now heavily invested in so-called renewables that don't work when it's cold, um, was failing. And if it weren't for the fact that Scott Moe made it so that they can turn back on coal-fired power plants in an emergency, which they were able to do, you would have saw the estimates were in the tens of thousands of Albertans freezing to death in the dark as a result of the failed electrical grid that uh, empower or energy energy systems really network in Alberta in this particular polar vortex. So, you know, here in Tennessee, we can 
kind of laugh about it. We're going to get cold. We're probably going to be able to bundle up and be fine. Texas is similar. But when you're looking at Alberta, Saskatchewan, yeah. uh, North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, even the caucus, it's like literally in the minus 30s. Um, we see Vivek Ramaswamy slipping on ice and not dying in the frozen wasteland of Iowa. These people are in genuine danger. And this is just as an aside, extraordinarily frustrating because we all know, if you think about it for 22 seconds, you immediately understand that when it comes to weather related deaths, we've actually got emergency weather management really good. The number of deaths from hurricanes and tornadoes and such, it's not zero, but it's dramatically down from a century ago, from even 30 years ago. On the other hand, people don't die. They do die from heat, but in small numbers, and they die from cold in large numbers. It is much easier to die from cold than it is to die from heat. So what did they do when they published the graphs? They literally put them side by side, deaths by cold, deaths by heat, and they didn't tell you that the scales were adjusted so that it looked like they were on par, where in reality, the deaths by cold are, are anywhere between 10 and 30 times higher. Um, you wouldn't even be able to see the deaths by heat on an even scaled uh, graph, but they adjusted the scales of each. So it actually at visual at first glance, it looks like they're the same, um, which is, of course, psychologically hard to override. So they're trying to manipulate people into believing that, oh, no, 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 cold's no big deal when cold is really going to kill people. And the energy crises that we are facing, that the highest grid demands are during brutal cold snaps like what we've just experienced. And that's compounded by the fact that all these stupid renewables, solar panels, were operating at something like 5% of their maximum efficiency during this cold in Alberta. Some, I foresaw the number. Maybe it wasn't 5, but it's extraordinarily low. Windmills literally freeze and won't move. The lubricants yeah. in them freeze. So the actual windmill won't turn no matter how much wind is blowing. They don't work in the cold. Well, it turns out, you know what does work in the cold? Fire. Fire always works. So <laughs> nuclear fire also works. So nuclear reactors, natural gas plants, um, which actually are more vulnerable in the cold, and then especially coal-fired plants, which are surprisingly clean, except in China. Um, those, those actually save lives. They keep us able to survive, you know, relatively short-term brutal cold snaps. Um, and eventually, you know, occasionally, once in a while, the climate has always delivered that we have brutal winters here and there where you don't have a short term cold snap across that upper continental uh, region. You end up with months of sub zero temperatures. And so this whole degrowth agenda doesn't just mean oh, we're going to have to get used to living with a little bit less like they try to advertise it so that we can have a better life overall. What Marx phrased it as is we would have more commonwealth. Uh, or communal wealth or yep. cooperative wealth by means of not not using up our, our natural resources so vigorously, um, which is, in a word, BS. Uh, we're all going to be much worse off, but we're not just going to have a lower standard of living. People are going to die of exposure in the cold. So this is why I say degrowth is a death cult. And what it means is uh, starving while you freeze to death in the dark, because eventually that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, uh, it's uh, so ironic that he called it like an inorganic uh, relationship. I mean, but but the he said the nature is in is our inorganic body. Our inorganic body, uh, because it's what by what we consume from nature. 
That's how we make our organic body. But, right. But, I, I'm like, that's a, it, but it's like, it's an oxymoronic. And the solution is to put us into synthetic cities and have a smart technology run the show. Like that's somehow organic. Yeah, they I, don't I mean, have I, good I, strategies. Well, Marx, for, I mean, to give him whatever credit he's due, was writing this in the 1840s and 1870s sure. and envisioned kind of this return to, you know, pastoral. Everybody's out in the forest right. having a good time fishing and like everything's going to be great because they don't have to spend all day working in a factory because um, the primary objective of communism and of degrowth communism specifically, if you read the books about it, they say it over and 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 over. Herbert Marcuse says it in the neo-Marxist literature over and over is the reduction of the hours of the working day. Right. What they really want is to maintain the highest standard of living possible while nobody does any work. That's what their real vision is, is that nobody works. And then the idea is that we're all supposed to lower ourselves to the bare minimum livable conditions because that's all we really need. Marcuse called everything above that false needs. We should only be addressing our true needs so that we can all work the very minimum amount so that we can survive. But the problem is with metabolic rift, they now believe that we have too damn many people on the planet. So there is no shrinking this down. You've heard them you know, say that depends on how many people are on the planet, how much the earth can, can maintain and how much freedom we can have. And if we had the population under 2 billion or under 1 billion, or maybe even as low as half a billion, then we can have a lot more freedom because we can't really exploit their natural resources the way that we do now, But on the which is also incorrect. We could literally be just with a very high standard of living for a very few no, small number of people. Um, but on the other hand, he said, if we want to have a population of eight to nine billion, which, you know, he says the planet can probably handle it, but the only way it could handle it and not going to complete, this isn't Marx. This is some guy recently. Um, and I can't remember who it is. He's saying the only way we could handle this is um, under severe dictatorship. This is, I think one of the club of Rome guys. And he was saying that under severe dictatorship, we could handle eight to 9 billion people because we can't have any freedom because people would use too much energy. And there's your stupid smart meters. They want to install on your houses um, so that you don't use too much of anything and we can manage the resources and they can use voodoo accounting to decide that that's worth trillions of dollars that they get to scrape off of the uh, top, uh, literally out of out of out of thin air. I mean, in this case, very literally out of thin air. Yeah, very literally. It, it's really funny when I looked up, uh, you know, I was looking up the history of this SEA ecosystem accounting, and then of course uh, the Biden administration did their last year national strategy to develop statistics for environmental economic decisions. Uh, which I think that's probably one of the next steps. We need to push back against that, at least in the United States. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but when it was when I was looking it up, it was funny because you know they kept saying gap. Uh, you know, generally accepted accounting principles. They didn't spell it out. So I wanted to investigate further, like what are typically generally accepted accounting principles and what came up, you know, you hover over and like a, a Wikipedia will pop up. And what popped up was this demon gap. And the demon is like a, a demon that um, helps women to find a lover, but then it renders them infertile. And I know that I know. And what was crazy immediately, I thought, well, that's kind of what they're doing to land. Like they're making it, yeah, this is it. And uh, they're making the land, it's very appealing, right? They're, 
you know, they're going mm, to yeah. help uh, preserve it, but it, they render it infertile because you can't, there's no productive use of the land. Mm, um, so I don't know that they knew that when they were, but I just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> just yeah, that that's, that's what came up. Uh, I have no idea if that, that means anything or not, but um, it is an appropriate metaphor. That's for sure. Um, yeah. What they want to overcome though, are generally accepted accounting principles and um, they want to destroy those actually uh, with their stupid ecological accounting. Uh, so that what they can do is avoid accusations of, you know, fiduciary mismanagement or any of these other things so that they can squeeze the assets. And I don't know how cynical to be about this. I don't know if it's that their agenda is primarily the depopulation or primarily the land and resource grab. But in either case, it's really bad. Yeah, well, I think that if their agenda is not Malthusian, that's going to be the effect. And there is a... in. There is some, it's not a big stretch to say that it, that it probably is Malthusian because one of their subpartners of the IEG is the World Wildlife Organization, which is the brainchild of Julian Huxley, who was a Malthusian. I mean, right. that was, yeah. So I, I, I don't think that would be a big stretch to say. So I, this is a bit of a, you know, pivot, but I think it's kind of related because, you know, Margaret Byfield, who we were talking about, she had a great quote. She said, if you, you know, either you own property or you become the property that is owned. And of course, that's, you know, their, their agenda. So we own nothing and be happy. Um, but I know right now there seems to be, and you've talked a lot about this, and I, I was listening to your last podcast on classical liberalism and the, the problems that actually exist, but it does seem like they're, doing this great Hegelian dialectic coming through the right to attack what looks to me just like a subversion of the Constitution. Essentially, that's their goal. I mean, we've seen it from the left for a very, very long time. And, you know, a little bit from the right, I think, with the, uh, you know, the Convention of States agenda, I think that keeps cop popping up, but it hasn't really gained the kind of traction that I think they had hoped. Um, and I do think that that is part of a uh, an operation with the intention of getting the right to subvert the Constitution. Um, not to say that there could never be any merit or any positive or any good, you know, genuine intentions behind it. I just think that it would be very easily co-opted and unfortunately would not go the way even people with the best of intentions, you know, had had hoped. Uh, but it seems like now there really is an agenda coming through the right to say that the roots of liberalism, the Enlightenment, is exactly the problem. I've heard this over and over again uh, from people who I would otherwise, you know, really respect and uh, like. And uh, I find this to be very, very concerning because I, you know, Constitution was created by humans. Humans are inherently flawed, so it is far from perfect. Um, you know, same thing with the notion of classical liberalism. But Right now, I see it as the best uh, bulwark against the, you know, the destruction and evisceration of the free will of humanity, if that is such a thing. And, uh, you know, I like to think it is, so I would like to preserve it. So Yeah, well, I mean, history bears out the classical liberal systems repelled communism more successfully than any others so far. Um, the entire reason Western Marxism or cultural Marxism and critical Marxism developed is because um, Marx believed that there was this progression of history that would lead capitalism to, and its contradictions to immiserate workers and them to want to revolt. And then you would move from capitalism into socialism. But what history bore out in the USSR, the foundation of the USSR and the Russian Revolution and in China was actually, no, it doesn't work that way. Feudal systems that are highly superstitious and religious give over to communism 
Whereas the Western Marxists, Antonio Gramsci in particular, but also George Lukács and then the Frankfurt School guys were extraordinarily frustrated that this yeah. wasn't happening in the West, that the Western system, which is broadly liberal in its orientation, was repelling them. Now, they claim that the backbone of that was Christianity, and that's partly true. But the fact of the matter is that um, Gramsci identified five key areas that were relevant to repelling communism, uh, cultural areas, and religion is one of them, but then the rest are family, education, media, and law. Uh, right. The fact that we relied on rule of law the way or rely on it the way that we do, which is that is that we operate liberal constitutional republics um, with the division of powers and the uh, governance being with the consent of the governed with inalienable rights being secured by those governments as it's due and proper duty um, actually kept communism out. The fact that we could take take it through education and media and share those values with other people, but in particular our children and through the family establish those values was a real stumbling block. And so it's really, it's this huge kind of perverted irony, in my opinion, that there's this push to say, well, classical liberalism is a failed system. It's communism 1.0 that just doesn't take the next step. When in fact, or worse, that uh, it's it, the root of the problem. I'm so, hearing that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it, it, it's the first step in communism is liberalism. And um, they they propose, for example, very frequently that, that Christianity is is actually the, the, the bulwark that would stop it. Now, I don't disagree that Christian values and Jewish values are a particular problem, and that's articulated by Marx himself, a particular problem for communists, uh, having a higher authority that you're willing to, to die to preserve uh, your fealty to, and therefore not the state, is a big problem for communists, and they acted that way all along. But the fact of the matter is that the way that the primary way that the communists got into Western civilization was through the churches and the schools. The social yeah. gospel came about in 1905. That's well before yeah. Woodrow Wilson. That's well before John Dewey. That's well before the public school system was set up. The social gospel was organized primarily by the Fabian socialists and transmitted through Walter Rauschenbusch. And exactly. literally, the reason that we have this word fundamentalists is that that was the reaction against the fact that the entire Baptist religion went completely left. The entire gospel was retooled around. Uh, around the idea of, um, of of socialism. And in fact, the claim Rauschenbusch made was that Jesus died for the, the six sins of capitalism so that we could have a social environment. And then the, even with all the school taken over from, from Dewey and, and the, the progressive reformers and all of this and all of the inroads through progressive Christianity and the fight with the fundamentalists and all of that, even with all the progress they were actually able to make in infiltrating into Western civilization. And I point out again, Rauschenbusch in 1905 is even before Gramsci was laying out the infiltration model. Christianity was always extraordinarily weak. Orthodox Christianity was co-opted by the Bolsheviks very, very quickly in, in Russia, for example. Very, very weak because communists twist your values around. And in fact, communism is a twisting around an inversion of Christian values in the first place. So it's extraordinarily <laughs> susceptible. Um, but this all stalled until a liberation theologian by the name of Paulo Freire reorganized schooling completely which didn't really take place until the 1990s, although he did his work in the 1960s and, and 70s. Um, 
it turns out that liberation theology, which is the perversion of Catholicism with communism, is it was a deliberate KGB operation to infiltrate Catholicism, which they saw as a major impediment to installing communism. And so they infiltrated it from within, following Lenin's dictum that the easiest way to control the opposition is to control it ourselves. And so they took over communism or Catholicism. We end up with our educator. We end up with this red bishop, as he's called, Dom Elder Camara in uh, Recife, Brazil. And, and Camara had some students that are relatively famous today, some protégés. He's a communist bishop. His three most famous protégés are this educator, Paulo Freire, who ends up becoming the liberation theologian who retools Western education to be communist. Another one is Klaus Schwab, who considered Dom Elder Camara to be his spiritual father. And then the third is Pope Francis. And I don't know, Catholics don't like to admit that they have a communist for a pope, but they have a communist for a pope. So it turns out that uh, Catholicism or Christianity more broadly, really, is highly infiltratable as well. What it actually takes is an emphasis on individual rights and a fealty to something other than the state, something bigger and beyond yourself that's not the state in order to be able to repel communism. And up until this subversion has taken place through the churches, through media, and through education getting controlled, um, we were actually very successful. Classical liberal systems were very successful at opposing it. I mean, it, to put it in its most basic bare bones, and the, the, the right-wing guys hate when I do this, but it's true, bare bones expression, the essence of classical liberalism is the uh, the protection of private property rights. The essence of communism, Karl Marx said umpteen times, is the abolition of private property rights. It's that simple. They are literally diametrically opposed systems. So classical liberalism is actually extraordinarily successful. It has some problems and some weaknesses. It does allow, for example, and this is what Karl Popper was wrestling with in 1945 when he wrote Open Societies and Their Enemies, um, which, of course, was a huge, it's a complicated book. It's a mentor. It's like the conceptual mentor for uh, George Soros, who had Popper as his uh, one of his actual mentors in life. Um, mm-hmm. But he, at the in, in a footnote in that book, he has what he calls the paradox of tolerance, where he's talking about open societies or liberal free societies. And how do you deal with the fact that the intolerant will eventually renormalize, to use kind of modern language, will renormalize a tolerant society? The How do you deal with the problem of intolerance? You can't be tolerant of intolerance. And Frankly, that's been the weakness. Answering that question and having a clear answer to that question and transmitting the answer to that question is a key weakness to repelling communism. And since the 1950s, we've really just slid on being able to do that. The answer turns out to be that, I mean, Popper has his answer is when the ideology is intolerant and they're willing to use, they're inciting people to violence, to use guns and knives and so on to enforce their ideas. That's when you withdraw tolerance. But the answer is actually, there's another term that could be used. It was popular in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, um, which is militant ideologies. And the answer is that classical liberalism has absolutely no reason to tolerate a militant ideology. Once an ideology shows itself to be militant, it has no reason to extend tolerance to any militant ideology beyond the basic uh, rights for them to speak or whatever else. Um, For example, there would be no particular 
violation if we were clear on this from prohibiting communists or, or fascists or, or Islamists from holding public offices, because all three of those are militant ideologies. You wouldn't want to define militant ideology so narrowly. You'd want a general description and then use that to exclude people. Um, and there's no reason that a open society or a free society or a liberal society should tolerate bad faith actors and militant ideologies always put forth bad faith criticisms of the systems that they're after. Um, boxing them out of power is the answer to maintaining free and open societies uh, that are peaceful and prosperous. Yeah. So, but that does pose a bit of a conundrum for because there's the people who are on, you know, the right who are who are advocating that that's their justification, right? Is that you? Well, we need to have. It's, I mean, some might even go as far as vying for a theocracy, but they're they're doing it under the guise that well, because this has become such a degenerate society, it's so corrupt, and these, as you put it, you know, militant ideas need to be rooted out, and so they they use that as their argument for then coming in with, with what is essentially another form of totalitarianism. Um, so, yeah, what do we think? Well, I mean, <laughs> what they're doing is is um, hideously ironic for another reason. But as far mm -hmm. as that goes, uh, it's it's really you, you don't they're 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 marrying a truth to a lie that we have to grow a spine of steel and start boxing out of power people who abuse power um, or try to, to, to gain power for a militant ideology that's corrosive to the the way of life or the, the socio-political system in, in, in the Western societies. They take that. That's a truth. We do need to box them out. We do need to remove them from the power that they abuse. We do need to be responsible and hold them accountable for their abuses and their violations. A lot of that is that they've infiltrated the legal system, which makes it more complicated in the judicial system and the and the criminal justice system. We've got to figure that, that out. That might require the application of, of, of more power than we're comfortable with, but I'm not sure. We're winning a lot of cases in court now. We're turning the minds of the judiciary uh, faster than I thought we would. Um, but then they take it and they marry this to a lie that what we need is this whole new system that shreds uh, the shreds, the uh, protection of individual liberties. And the, the hideous irony of all this, it, it reminds me of the story like in Utah. So Utah decided to change their flag recently. They got rid of their old state flag and there's lots of, I guess, pretty good arguments for why they should. And then they have this new state flag that looks kind of like a cartoon or very logo-ish, but some people really like it. And, um, I have recently been in trouble in Utah because I got asked about this and I said, well, that's communism and you don't fall for communism. And well, I've heard out their arguments for why they're doing it. And it's a very conservative state senator who led the charge. It's a very conservative policy. Yeah, there's the new Utah flag. Looks like a logo. Um, looks like something that you would, you know, put on on cups and t-shirts to sell them as opposed to a state flag. Totally. And nevertheless, uh, which, by the way, I think was part of the marketing Sure. Point of this yeah. whole change. What my point really is, though, is why would you in, in, in the midst of a cultural revolution, which is what we're have, having happen here? We're yeah. not in normal times. This isn't smooth sailing times. No, we're in the middle of a cultural revolution where the goal of the enemy, meaning the communists or whoever mm -hmm. they are, is to 
erase the past and change everything to something new that's under yes. their dominion. Why would you voluntarily decide now's a great time to change something as symbolic and fundamental as a banner? Well, look at these people. They're desperate. They're freaking out. Oh right. no, the communism's almost here. Let's shred the constitution. The communists are right. We need a whole different system. And this has been the error that has lurched us into fascism repeatedly yeah. in the past. You name the country, whether it's Spain, whether it's Germany in the 1930s, whether it's Greece, whether it's Portugal, whether all the Italy, all the countries that went fascist, lots of them mm -hmm. in South America have made this mistake. And what happens mm -hmm. in every case? Eventually, this new system that preserves zero individual rights is taken over by the left with huge amounts of popular support and moral authority because the fascists are brutal and people don't like the fascists. They like it at first. The economy gets better. Life gets better. They like it for four or five years. It's like when you do transition, you feel great on all the hormones for a year and a half. Then you're like, whoops, I cut my genitals off. I'm really sad. This is what happens when you go fascist. You've cut off the essence of your free society. And when, when the people decide this is really bad and the honeymoon period is over, the left gets all the moral authority. They take over a brutal apparatus and you end up with communist states. And this has happened in every, not, not almost every, every example where fascism yeah. was pre presented as a solution because fascism isn't the reversal of communism. Fascism is the extension of communism. It yep. is saying communists, in a sense, I know this is going to get weird and theological, hold up the state in the same position that Christians hold up Christ. Yeah. It is a self-sacrificial savior. It is God-made man who kills himself, as Mark said, the state will wither away at the moment when it's no longer needed and you end up in, a, in, in total freedom because right. you sacrificed in this case, the state is God and the state sacrifices itself for the liberation of humanity. So it holds up, it holds up, um, the state as a Christ-like figure. Well, fascism's like, no, the state is God, the father, the God, the father is eternal. Our power is eternal. Our power is absolute. They just cut out this whole self-sacrificial, you know, part of the story. And they say, no, 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 we're just in charge. And we have the authority of the divine behind us. Mussolini, I like reading the fascists, frankly, because communists are tricky and subversive and it's complicated. Mm -hmm. The fascists just say it. They're like, yeah. Mussolini's like, my system's totalitarianism. It's a spiritual system. The state is the deity. You know, it's like, okie dokie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no, uh, you don't need to read between the lines on that one. No, very little between the lines involved. Uh, whereas with communists, everything's a little bit upside down. Everything's a little bit out of order. So what it is, is it's failed communists simplify their system and say, screw it. We're not going to do this two-step process where we build out power and then sacrifice ourselves. We're just going to take power. And yeah. they say- And let you know it. Right. They, they throw away the pretenses. Communists pretend that they're overcoming oppression, but really they're seizing oppression. The fascists just say, no, you know what? We've had a lot of oppression. It's worked out great for us. We're going to do more of it. We're going to do a lot more oppression. Oppression's been good. We're going to oppress more. And then the result is, you know, killing millions of your own citizens, just like the communists. But in the end, it freaks everybody out. It's horrifying. And the left comes back with their trickiness and steals the power back. It only takes so long. Uh, Greece, it was, I think, seven years. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Franco held power for something close to 40 in Spain, but look at it now. Spain's completely socialist. 
um, various amount of times in the different countries in, in South America, which are basically all communist now. Um, just go down the list. Right, right. So um, it's funny when you talked about uh, Marx, you know, and how he basically said like that the, the state would completely wither away and then you'd have complete freedom. So people have made the case that Marx was really a libertarian, which is kind of funny. Yeah, Marx was a liberationist. If yeah, there, there is a terminology, not a libertarian. Um, he believed in a final anarchic state. Uh, but only after man had been completely remolded by totalitarian brutality to the point yep. where he realized his true nature is a absolute and perfect socialist. And so, um, yeah, there's there's that whole part where there's no liberty all the way through. So what Marx was, was ultimately a Gnostic. He hated the yeah. material realities which were expressed through social stricture, society. If you actually read Lenin, it's really clear um, what they hate is society itself, which is, is just Rousseau warmed over. Society is the thing that limits man from being in a state of nature, but society simultaneously is what gives us the ability to have the good life instead of being trapped in the state of nature. So what do you have to do? You have to figure out how to re recover the state of nature while still having the benefits of society, the state of nature, nobody has to go to work. And so the reduction in the working hours of the working day, blah, blah, blah. It's like, this is their stupid fantasy. And what their conclusion was is the only way that we can possibly do that is we take the raw material that's man like he is in state of nature, and we remake him into something right. completely different, mm -hmm. um, which can only be done through what amounts to some form uh, of, of primarily psychological and social, but in practice, it works out both ways, some form of eugenics to, to remake man. I mean, that's why Marcuse said to get the revolution, we have to remake man at the biological level to have the vital needs to live in a truly social system, a truly free society. Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on there philosophically, but the, the answer is that they're angry that society doesn't let them, uh, live however they want to live. They want to be liberated from society. Um, libertarians may share this impulse in a slightly different way, but it seems like libertarians don't want that. They want a truly voluntary society where each person yeah. decides how they want to participate. Marxists can say, well, we want a voluntary society too. But the problem is, is that that only is possible in Marxist theory after decades of remolding man so that they only want to do socialism. Right. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't want to do any of the wrong things. Right. That's very convenient for them. The, the, the things they deem are wrong. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, it's at the uh, uh, Adam Weishaupt's, you know, uh, Bavarian Order of the Illuminati was originally called the Perfectibilis. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. yeah, they essentially thought, you know, they could remake man into a perfect. And so, yeah, it is very much a Gnostic kind of. I kind of see it as like the, the communists are very like Gnostic, Luciferian, and the fascists are kind of openly, directly sat satanic. You know, if, you, if you're to subscribe to that framework, yeah, um, right. that seems kind of how it, it plays out. So then there's like the uh, post, uh, the what post liberal, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what we see emerging right now. And I, I guess my question would be twofold: your thoughts on 
you know, that movement that really is emerging and it's very much coming through the quote unquote right. Although I think we're seeing a lot of, you know, the, the left right as being played out as kind of a intentional control dialectic where mm -hmm. it's more about people identifying than an actual accurate framework. Um, but so we're seeing that happen a lot through the right. Uh, so I guess my question is about like how, is that playing out? How can that be? Is there anything that can be done to, because I think that that's a, a, I think it's a real threat because I don't think people really understand how that's coming in to subvert individual freedoms. And then my, my next question from that would be, what are your thoughts about things like, you know, the, the conservative media and the conservative uh, ideology currently? I'm super concerned about it in the kind of yeah. the same ways and for the same reasons that you seem to be. Um, the fact is that they, the the post-liberal left and the post-liberal right are both post-liberal. They play off of one another uh, <laughs> in, a, in a highly energetic spiral. They're also not just post-liberal. So if we leave the liberal system, which economically is a... Um, economically is, is, is free enterprise. That's the free enterprise, not capitalism or any of these other words, um, right. free markets, no free enterprise. The ability to, to do free enterprise is the heart of the liberal economic system. Well, if we go post liberal, we go beyond that to the next thing. What's, what does that look like? The answer is actually a distributism model, which is a word a lot of people haven't heard. That's where there's a commonwealth and there are enlightened masters who have the right ideology who figure out how to distribute the work and spoils among the people. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a new form of feudalism. And it yeah. turns out that the communist model is left distributism. And the answer proposed by the post-liberal right is right-wing distributism. So it's really the same economic model. I don't know how these people are so arrogant. They pretend that they're great Christians in many cases, how they're so arrogant to believe that the nasty subversive left isn't going to take over when they build out the same model that the nasty subversive left isn't going to infiltrate it and subvert it and turn it into the, to the left's model, um, which already, by the way, combines the elements of right wing and left wing. When I first went to China, Many years ago, I came back and people asked me what it was like. And I was like, what I said was, it's like if you took the worst outcomes of left-wing politics and the worst outcomes of right-wing politics, and you have both and nothing else. You don't get any of the good things. You just get the bad of both sides. So you have this rampant industry, these extraordinarily rich kind of robber-bearing characters, the pollution, the lack of regulation, the corruption that goes with this kind of oligarchical big business model, literally a kleptocracy that's um, run through the CCP, which I didn't know how to name at the time. It's called corporate subsidiarity. Uh, so they're, they're running a subsidiarity model. But at the same time, you have people doing utterly useless jobs that make no sense whatsoever. You have people unwilling to work, making up excuses not to work because it's socialism. Why work? Right. Who cares? And so you see the, 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 the failures of both sides of politics at the same time. And little did I know that that's ex the Chinese system is the model for the system, the, the ultimate distributive system that the United Nations and the World Economic Forum want to build throughout the West. So you would have the exact same problem. You'd have these mega corporations, oh, that's right wing, who have total property rights. In fact, you will own nothing and be happy. The state won't own everything. These corporations will, but the corporations are subsidiary to the overarching uh, stakeholder 
whatever council system, whatever they set up, network committee, whatever they call it, it's a Soviet in, in any case, and it's a, which will function in, in in essence exactly like the CCP, which allows a so-called market to flourish within China, but it's not a, a free enterprise market. It is a at the pleasure of the CCP market. In other words, it is a subsidiary market to the CCP and its wishes. And so the goal is to build out corporate subsidiarity to do distributism where you will own nothing and you will be happy. You'll have a social credit score. How well you participate in society will determine your worth. That will determine your access to the bounties of the commonwealth that is being generated by society, which they and their enlightened state through your social credit system score will determine your distribution. And it will also determine what aspects of work that you might want to do and aspects of work that you definitely do not want to do that you have to participate in, um, because those will both be distributed more equitably. If you read the Degrowth Communism book, he actually says that the goal is to take, there's the work people want to do, and it'll be organized how people do it. And then there's the work nobody wants to do, which is probably ugly, dirty work, dangerous work, stinky work. And that will be uh, distributed among everybody more fairly. And so what you see is equity of, so why don't feminists want to work on oil rigs or in sewers? Um, because those jobs suck. That's why. They don't want real equity or equality in work. But what the model is, is there will be equity. Everybody with a crappy social credit score is going to pick up all of the bad levels of work. So the social credit score becomes a proxy for the distribution system of the distributist model that exists in China today and is being built around ESG and sustainable development goals in the West right now through corporate subsidiarity, which is the model that works in China. And so when the right, <laughs> so-called right, is pushing <laughs> for a distributist model based on their values, which apparently they think are not subvertible by communists, which is the most stupid, arrogant thing I've ever heard of in my life. Um, they're really just playing right hand of the left. They're building out the same system. And I'm very, very concerned about these currents. Um, yeah, that's the that's the particular degrowth communism book, Mark, Marx and the Anthropocene. And the seventh chapter is just, uh, I think it's chapter seven, it's the last full chapter, is really an eye-opener because what he does is he inverts the meanings of um, abundance and wealth uh, and scarcity so that communism produces abundance and wealth of a different kind, not commodities, not things, not stuff, not quality of life, whereas uh, capitalism demands scarcity so it can drive prices. Uh, ownership creates scarcity because everybody doesn't share it in common. So now it's scarce. Um, it doesn't matter that there are ample and abundant resources for everybody and all of that in reality. It's a literal inversion of the words. And then the whole distributist model falls out of that. Um, and he describes it. He doesn't use the word distributism, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, those who are worthy, according to the council, get the shares of the spoils and those who are unworthy, make sure to pick up the, their share of the ugly work that has to be done. Um, and the right basically wants to build the same thing. They just think they can install it with different values, Christian values, religious values, traditional values or whatever, and think that's not going to get co-opted. Which is really absurd. I feel like it's already been co-opted quite honestly. I mean, I'm just an observer, but it looks so obviously co-opted and it looks like there's, Yes. Even if it's not co-opted directly, it's still balkanizing. It's going to yes. fragment the nation. This is what W.B. Du Bois did that damaged uh, America, the American fabric so badly 
when he said that it, he asked, is it possible to be a Negro and an American at the very beginning of Souls of Black Folk? Um, mm -hmm. 1903, he wrote that, suggesting that no, it's not actually possible to be both. Was well, it possible to be a Christian and an American? It's the same balkanizing logic. And the end of that road for W.B. Du Bois's idea of double consciousness uh, was black nationalism, black separatism, and eventually CRT when it got co-opted by the Marxists. Where do you right. think Christian nationalism or whatever else is going to go? You're going to say, well, here we have this region dedicated to this you know, faith tradition, this denomination, and everybody's going to be thinking the same way, feeling the same way. And we're going to make sure that, you know, the people who have the right values are elevated in society and the people who don't are, are you know, have a harder time or excluded. In other words, a social credit system is going to be applied. And you now have this balkanized region that's a splinter off uh, the, the broader society. This, I point out W.E.B. Du Bois here, but this is also exactly what Mao Zedong was tasked to do in his early days in the CCP in China in the 1920s and 30s. He was tasked by the Comintern, the Communist International, Third International, headed by Stalin at the time, to infiltrate the nationalist plan that Guomingdong had its plan to create a national identity for all Chinese called Huaran. And what the mm -hmm. CCP did was infiltrated and said, actually, guys, very subversive, it's Han run. You have to be Han people. They're imposing the majority identity on everybody. Just like in America, we have we all have to live by whiteness if we want to succeed. You all had to exhibit Hanness to really be Chinese. But they're trying to come up with this fake name uh, of Chinese people that everybody's under. But really what they're doing is destroying your ethnic identity. So they really created CRT in China in the 20s and 30s. Um, and executed it to fracture into various ethnic splinter groups the um, the nationalists' attempt to unify China into one solid nation. I'm not going to defend necessarily the Guomingdong or Chiang Kai-shek or any of these guys. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. What I'm saying is that when you start creating these divisive balkanized splinters, this is an insurgency model. This was the model pioneered by uh, or, or implemented by Mao on the direction of Stalin and the, and the Third International to splinter the nationalist resistance and nationalist solidarity. So when you start creating the, you know, you know, upper Cumberland Baptist, whatever, and then the Western you know, mountain, I don't know, I got to pick another religion, Presbyterian circuit or whatever. And you, you start doing this denominational thing and you start making them ask the question, is it possible to be an American, which is secular and be a Christian, which has values, in fact, that don't necessarily agree with the First Amendment um, or other parts of the Constitution or other parts of secular society? Is it possible? Now you have splinter groups. Now you have broken national identity and broken solidarity to resist. So if they can't infiltrate directly, they can they can they can cause this large scale national destabilization and demoralization where everything feels like it's falling apart. Nobody's able to get along. Nobody can see eye to eye. And in the meantime, they build out little systems internally to make sure you're doctrinally correct. They balkanize the nation. They build a social credit system. The whole thing is ripe for divide conquer and then to co-opt the control system that was installed in order to allegedly defend you from the takeover. The whole thing is is just utterly preposterous. But I, I go back to the Utah flag. Why <laughs> make desperate changes right. in the middle of an attempt to throw out everything old and bring in something completely new? Yeah, no, absolutely. 
Um, yeah, there there were so much in there. I'm, I'm trying to think of where to go with that because I, I think one of the things I keep talking about how I'm seeing, and I can't prove this, but I, I very much see what looks to me like a possible uh, counter Intel Pro to Operation Mockingbird. And if you think about the, the, they call them the dissident right, you know, alternative media, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I think all the labels have been so blurred and co-opted intentionally. So it's kind of hard to know what to call it. But I see it's, if you think about it, it's so much easier to infiltrate there than it is to do Operation Mockingbird, like how much cheaper it is, easier it is. Um, and I'm very much seeing that. And what I'm seeing happen as a result is there is all just what you're saying. It's this result of balkanization. It's this result of also just a constant infighting. And, you know, some of that I think is, is relatively organic. I'm, I'm not going to blame it all, but some of it looks really contrived. And, uh, you know, and then you have some of the mainstream, like, you know, there, uh, there are all these names for it now, like Conservative Inc. or Big Con or whatever you want to call it, but they're adopting a lot of these narratives. And I don't think that's coincidental, but these narratives look like they're going to, they may claim that they're big supporters of liberty and individual freedom and the Constitution. But when you look at a lot of the narratives that they're promulgating, they're antithetical to that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really concerning. Um, it's, it's very clear that uh, you can count on the influencer class across the board and whatever to all jump on the same stories and everybody has to talk about them and everybody has to render their opinion to kind of signal that they're, you know, they've got their take on the thing. Um, and it's in alignment with what the movement indicates. And some of those seem to be um, deliberately misdirecting, uh, taking us off of the focus, arguing about trivial things or in causing infighting or division or splits. Um, it feels like you said, very much like, uh, you know, infiltration and uh, intentional misdirection and, and, and fragmenting of what was kind of a year and a half ago, a year ago, a very kind of unified movement to get our country back on track. Um, and uh, if I was a communist, I would have infiltrated big time. There would be people on my dime. I'd be telling them, I'd be either telling them or dripping them information so that they talk about the wrong things, uh, that they pick fights, they start fights that they don't need to start. Um, I would, the, the, the parent of fascism, the parents of fascism are, are doom and despair, fear. And so I would be constantly, you know, infiltrating with messages that, like everything's already really bad. You can't, we can't get it back. It's too late. It's gone. This whole doomer narrative, I'd be trying to stoke things that are beneficial to the left, but very seductive, like identity politics. Oh yeah, diversity is equity and inclusion is designed to cheat white people. Doesn't matter that statistically it actually cheats Asian people more, which isn't to shill for Asian people or to play identity politics. It's to point out that the narrative that it's anti-white is not accurate. Um, it's something more complicated is going on there, or something more subtle is going on there. But it's very easy to start saying, "Oh no, actually, guys, it's really simple. It's anti-white racism." And now you have anti-white racism and anti-white black or anti-black racism fighting in a dialectic, uh, and you've now missed the point. You're not actually talking about the fact that it's about establishing a counter hegemony and you're fighting instead about who gets to be more racist. And, um, everybody feels aggrieved. Everybody's dumping negative energy into the system and everybody's looking for more power to solve the problem where in reality, what you have happening underneath all of it 
uh, is being completely missed and ignored. And that's what really needs to be happening uh, is, is us identifying that, that substrate of what's actually causing these things. But there are lots of influencer accounts. Um, they do shows. They're on social media. They're very popular that I am overwhelmingly suspicious of now because they're so consistent. Maybe they just believe it or maybe right. they don't. Um, many of them are anonymous. You have no idea who they are. Um, right. Some of them are semi-anonymous. We didn't know who they were until somebody like Tucker Carlson made them extremely famous. Right. Um, but they still present themselves as effectively anonymous. Uh, you certainly wouldn't be able to easily go pick them out on the street like you could me. Um, right. And it, it's, again, do they believe it? I don't know. If right. I was a communist, you wouldn't want them to know. You'd want some people who are saying in earnest, some people are following others, and some people who are are literally just agents provocateur. Yeah. Yeah, you would, definitely. I You you had said how a year ago or a year and a half ago, they were much more unified. And, uh, you know, wasn't there that symposium that the World Economic Forum did, and they said that one of the biggest problems they have to contend with is the independent media? So I... I hardly think that they just let that go. It would seem that if they were, you know, hell bent well, on achieving their goals, they would. More poignantly, what they said was that the the good news, and this was pretty close. This is paraphrasing pretty closely. The good okay. news is that the elites, or actually she pronounced it elites, which is the super <laughs> elite way to say elite. The elites <laughs> trust one another more and more. The bad news is that the people trust the elites less and less and kind of the um, the contrapositive of that is in fact that we also were trusting one another and not trusting them. And so the answer to that is to fragment that space of trust. Everybody's at each other's throats. Everybody's like, are you trying to mislead us or are you just dumb? Like, why are we dumping so much gas on the uh, fire of tearing down the constitution. Now I get it. Some of these people aren't American and so they don't have a constitution to defend. And so I don't know what the right answers are for their, their countries. But in other cases you have Americans. I, I could post on, on social media right now, right now I could post on social media, a defense of the constitution. And by the, the end of the afternoon, I'll have dozens, if not many more than that, uh, replies that the constitution's already dead. I hear that all the time. Every yeah. day. And yeah. is that a disinfo op? Yeah, probably. It's probably demoralization op that's being run by bot accounts primarily uh, from right. some central location, but it's astonishing. And then there are actually people I know in person. So I know they're real people. I am almost positive they run their own social media accounts. <laughs> and they're in on it too. Uh, they've bought the line and um, these things are very damaging. So I'm very concerned. I, I strongly suspect that the that there is a, a severe infiltration problem that we are being every time we start to get too close to the truth, we get scattered. Uh, the image yeah. I always see in my head is somebody shooting the ball, the, the cue ball at, a, at, at the at the um, billiards on the table and breaking mm -hmm. you know, doing the break. We, we finally gather together. We're finally making progress. We got people having each other's backs and then the balls get scattered again. They get smashed again, but that requires somebody to launch the cue ball into the, into the grouping right. in the first place. You can tell yeah. I don't play billiards because I don't know the names for these things. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't either. I'm not, that's not my strong suit. I got cue ball. <laughs> I got corner pocket. And I, I know what yeah. an eight ball is. We're pretty much good. <laughs> yeah. That, that works. Yeah. I, I see, I hear this, this rhetoric, you know, the constitution is dead. Uh, but then the other trope that I'm hearing all the time is, well, the constitution was created by, you know, the enlightenment and therefore it's the root of the problem, uh, yep. which yeah, and it just doesn't really make any sense. I mean, I feel like it's kind of ironic that the people the we we could kind of this might be broad brushstroke, but I think the fact that they have the liberty to say those things and the technology with which to do so, most of them are doing it via technology, is a product uh, a result of the Enlightenment. But they're critiquing the Enlightenment for all of the problems that we're seeing today and all the you know cultural problems that we're seeing today, which doesn't really make any sense to me. Well, I mean, there's a lot that can be said about that philosophically. They're mixing together different Enlightenments, the French Enlightenment, the German Enlightenment, the English Enlightenment. They are treating uh, the—there uh, is an aspect to which the Enlightenment can be considered kind of a spiritual awakening, which mm -hmm. they are blending together with the idea of that it was man also realizing that he should defer to reason when he has to get right answers about the world, which is a challenging thing to do and not in our nature, which is sort of what the English Enlightenment landed on, whereas the French Enlightenment was very much about, uh, you know, immediacy of experience and lived experience and, and sincerity of being and all of this. And the uh, it's very much more you know, romantic and, and had ties back to the Renaissance and the mm -hmm. German enlightenment was to idealism and systematic uh, philosophies that, that we could systematize the entire world. And that in fact, that systematization is based off of ideal forms that are graspable by the human mind, which is neoplatonism, which it's, it's wizardry. And it, it turns out not to be um, what is meant in, in broad and everyday conversation by, uh, you know, enlightenment rationalism or the enlightenment, uh, which is why I tend to want to steer away from that phrase enlightenment. It's, it's messy. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. It's hard to disentangle and focus on, on the generation of American style, classical liberalism very specifically, mm -hmm. because I think that that's the right answer to the question is American style, classical liberalism. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I, well, I think, and most people don't know that. So they're, they're really just, uh, they're using a catchphrase and uh, essentially what has been distilled to a soundbite, which is, I think, a part of, I think it's actually intentional. A lot of times that's how a lot of operations work. You know, they yeah. start at this higher level, right? Yeah, and it's hard to say is if it is it disingenuous or is it stupid, um, because they they mix these things in a way that's so ridiculous. Um, American style classical liberalism was being forged. The Constitution was being written. The Bill of Rights, the arguments in the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers were taking place in light of the French Revolution. And Americans such as Thomas Jefferson were in Paris while this was going on. So they were bearing witness to the fruits of the so-called French Enlightenment and realizing we don't want that. The yep. ideas of um, liberty, egalite, and fraternity somehow go real wrong. And this isn't the direction we want to go. And so the actual foundation of America was encoding, don't do the French Revolution. At the mm -hmm. same time as it was taking in the English Enlightenment ideas, it was also reflecting off of what was happening in France and saying, don't do that. Right. And so 
to say, oh, well, Rousseau is really a major enlightened father of the Enlightenment. Figure. Not in the American sense. We were literally rejecting the guy. Yeah. He was a major Enlightenment figure for the French Enlightenment and a major Enlightenment figure in the subsequent German idealist Enlightenment. But we were literally America was built off of largely rejecting those. Um, the claim is, though, that when we say things in our founding documents, like that in order to form a more perfect nation, we encoded the idea of eternal progressiveness or progression. Um, which communism just has the uh, the testosterone, if you will, to try to reify. Um, but we didn't say that we were going to try to remake human beings at any point whatsoever or strip them of their liberties to make sure that the union would be made perfect or any of this nonsense. And we also explicitly rejected the idea of the perfectibility of the union. We said we're going to strive toward a more perfect union. We never said we're going to fix the thing. We're never going to get it perfect. We're not going to create kingdom of God here on earth, which is explicitly the terms that communism describes for its project. And so um, I don't think that it's it's accurate for these people to try to, to take these concepts. And again, I don't know, a lot of them are philosophical dilettantes, um, yeah. which I mean, mea culpa, I kind of am too. Um, so maybe they're just getting it wrong. They're mixing things together. What I see very frequently, because their mindset is this kind of conservative religious lords and magistrates kind of mindset. They hold up the fathers of classical liberalism, like John Locke is always a magistrate. It's always like Saint John Locke of classical liberalism, whom we have to take verbatim in every one of his thoughts. But the exact idea of classical liberalism is nobody gets special final authority. So if yeah. John Locke is right about this, we recognize him, we give him the citation, we honor him for the contribution, but where he's wrong, we throw it in the trash. We don't have to hold him up. We can separate the man and his other ideas from his correct ideas. In other words, we can separate the wheat from the chaff, or we can separate the weed or the the the, the wheat from the tares uh, mm -hmm. in the system. And we do that by making sure nobody becomes venerated as an authority. John Locke is no exception. Thomas Jefferson is no exception. He had stupid ideas too. Um, he had some good ones. We keep the good ones. Martin Luther King is the big psyops of the month, and. Uh -huh. um, Martin Luther King, we celebrate for literally almost exactly one reason. There's almost no, not a second reason. Most Americans can't name a second reason why we care about <laughs> him. And the reason is because he perfectly articulated our constitutional principles at a difficult time. Oh, yeah. Yep. So he's a radical. He's a philanderer. He's a socialist. He's this, he's that. And the other thing, he's, you know, got violent tendencies, whatever else. Yeah, we buried that. The left has spent the last 50 years being angry about that because we should see the radical, the whole Martin Luther King. So what's the right doing now? Well, let's dig up the whole Martin Luther King. So what does that do? The right isn't going to accept the socialist radical Martin Luther King. They're going to reject him. The left is going to still accept the socialist radical Martin Luther King that they're now more aware of. And you polarize Martin Luther King. He becomes a conservative versus leftist thing. He loses his status as an American icon, and he became an American icon because of effectively one sentence that he said extremely well in one speech at a particularly important time. So in classical liberalism, he's not St. Martin Luther King. He's a dude who stood stood up on a on a pedestal and said the right thing at the right time that, that that echoed our principles. John Locke isn't a saint. He's not a magistrate. We don't take all of his words. He didn't write a gospel. He wrote thoughts. And that's the difference. So what I see is the error is that these folks on the right very frequently hold up 
these characters as as saints who every one of their words has to be taken as though it's divine revelation, which is straight up a category error. So you can't criticize liberalism by saying John Locke got things wrong. The whole point of liberalism is that people like John Locke get most of the things they say wrong. Right. That's literally the whole point. Yeah. Well, I always say if people spend as much time adjudicating information as they do glorifying, buying and vilifying sources, we'd be in a very different place. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a, a broken um, clock is right twice a day, right? You know? Yeah, that's right. But it's a um, veneration of the individual yeah. into a personal authority, which is yeah. exactly what the liberal system, however many feelings it hurts along the way, which it hurts everybody's feelings along the way. Uh, yeah. because reality hurts everybody's feelings and the truth hurts everybody's feelings along the way. Um, the liberal system was created specifically not to make that mistake. And then they say, well, that's classical liberalism. And like, uh, it's not. No, it's not. It's just not. because Locke said it doesn't make it classical liberalism, bro. It, it just isn't. <laughs> Locke, Locke did that blank slate thing. Totally wrong. Totally wrong. Yeah, totally wrong. Not how it works. Yeah, no. Throw that one in the, in the river. That one's not good. Not good. We know <laughs> no. better now. Let's do better. Uh, I concur. I concur. What is your advice to, because I feel like one of the biggest problems that we are up against is that they do, I, is do, that they do want to keep splintering and dividing us. And they do that mostly through these, you know, narrative ops and whether or not people are sincere in buying them. I mean, that is kind of the whole principle of useful idiots, right? Is that yeah. they are earnest and they, they, they jump right onto the line, hook, line and sinker. Um, but what do you advise people in how to, you know, how to adjudicate information without jumping on like, okay, I'm playing team red versus team blue. You know, I'm, I'm cheering for this football team, whatever the analogy might be. But that's kind of what it feels like lately. It's yeah, like well, I support the current thing and, you know, let's yeah. cheer and the I hate you is, if you don't. Ignore it. The answer is to ignore it. The answer is to ask yourself, hey, self, do we got real shit going on here? We got real shit going on here. We don't need to argue about a calendar. We have real shit going on here. They are actually taking over our schools. They are brainwashing our kids into cutting off their own genitals. They've yeah. conquered the medicals. We got to argue about a calendar and whether or not it's proper modesty. No, this is noise. So I find that I'm the most miserable and unproductive when I pay attention to that crap. I get sure. mired down. I get demoralized. And I think that's its purpose. The second that I find something productive to do, the second, whether it's to show up for a group and speak, whether it's to show up for a parent's group at a town hall or a meeting or whatever, you know, a school board meeting or a county town council meeting or whatever, and back them up, whether it's to start writing, you know, essays or a new book or to go on a, a podcast, you know, what the things that I do for my job that I think are productive. Immediately, right. I'm in a better mood. I'm happier. And all that stuff starts to look very much like what it is, which is distracting, splintering noise that shouldn't be engaged with in the first place. So you get bored, you're tired, you get on social media, you aren't sure. Sometimes you're, um, you're wayward. You don't know what to do next. You don't know what the next activity is. And so you get sucked into these stupid dramas because we as human beings get sucked into stupid dramas. And then the discipline that you have to have if you want to make progress and stay in a better mood is to not get sucked into stupid drama. And you have to look and like I said, the question you need to ask yourself is very simply, do we got real shit going on or is this something that we have to do? 
Um, I talked to Tiffany Justice about the, the calendar, particularly when that was happening. Uh, she's a, one of the co-founders of Moms for Liberty. And she's like, really? We've got real shit to do. And I think about it all the time. We've got real shit to do here in the world. We have a communist revolution trying to take us over. And we're arguing on social media with influencers about how whether or not this is modest or this is appropriate, you know, some video of some girl who said some crap about how she doesn't want to have kids. And so now we all have to pretend this is newsworthy and something that thousands of people or millions of people have to comment on. Meanwhile, Boeing's got DEI hiring and is drilling holes through airframes and planes are going to come out of the sky. We got real shit to focus on. So cut out the noise, focus on something real. If you see yourself getting sucked into drama, what I do now, I actually, the people who post the drama, I either mute or block them on social media immediately. I never want to see it again. I don't yeah. care how useful they are otherwise. I don't I don't ever want to see it again. It's noise. And I, as soon as I start seeing myself get sucked into the drama, I'm trying. It's very hard. It very much helps to say, I'm going to go do something like work out, exercise, go outside, go for a walk, something that is a complete break from the social media. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to do something productive that might move the needle on something that matters and not get sucked into the drama. Right. I, I hear you. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of noise. Imagine but, if uh, over Christmas I'd been fighting about calendars instead of talking about natural asset companies. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> then uh, we might not have had this uh, small little victory, which I, I don't, I shouldn't say small. I no, think it it's was a very significant a victory. It's significant. It just means, I just don't want people to think that means we rest. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> that's the problem with, with the conservatives. The other problem with them, not to open a whole can of worms, but you give them yeah. the football, so to speak, if I can do a football metaphor. And, yeah. you know, it's 10 yards to a first down. You give them the football, they run two and they stop and wait for the cheering of the crowd. Nobody blocked yep. them. They just stop and wait for the crowd to adore them. And then <laughs> yeah. somebody comes and knocks them over. They don't finish the job. And so, oh, yeah, we stopped natural asset companies. Let's all go, you know, have a party. And now we can move on to back to normal life. Everything's fine now. No, back no, no. Back to calendar gate. <laughs> yeah, you have, you have not. We have only, we won a medium-sized battle in a huge campaign that's part of yeah. a giant war and yes. we've got to keep our eyes on winning the campaign which is breaking the entire you know kind of environmental social governance social or sorry sustainable development goal uh program yeah that's the campaign and then the war is this entire attempt to take over uh take over the west um and if we defeat that campaign that's one of their major campaigns Yes. You know, we do a big dent, but yeah. So conservatives have a problem with taking the ball, running two yards and waiting for the crowd to cheer. That's what, exactly what we did with the Bud Light situation. There were never hearings asking Anheuser-Busch to explain why in the world they did this. Why yeah. in the world did this happen? There was never a fiduciary responsibility lawsuit uh, that could have gone into discovery to find out how enthralled they are to the corporate equality index score and how that ties to their ESG who uh, is creating the incentives? What do the incentives look like? What other incentives are there? Are other corporations given similar incentives? The answer is yes, they are. And until we start unearthing that through either investigative journalism or prying it out of people through uh, hearings and and testi testimony under oath, uh, congressional oversight hearings, for example, um, we're never going to find out how that we're never going to expose this enough to make them have to stop. Yeah, no, that's so true. Um, that that Tiffany's response to the calendar gate was really funny. I actually proposed it. I do a show with Dr. Lee Merritt, and she had kind of the same response. She's like, "What is this? And yeah. why does anybody care? No, like, we have real shit to do. What are you? <laughs> yeah. Why are we fighting about this? 
Yeah. Why are we even talking about this? Like it right. offended you? Cool. Who cares? You'll Move get on. over it. Yes. Well, Stop speaking talking of to the girls in it, if you don't like them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect solution. So speaking of offended, this is a big can of worms, so we don't have to go too deep into it, but I, I am curious your thoughts on what's going on with, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Gaza Palestine, uh, the Gaza Israel conflict and how, you know, now we have all these protests and these rallies, it looks very reminiscent of BLM and it does in some ways look, I mean, I know there is, they, they've proven, they did articles on this that they're, and it's very public that there was, you know, leftist money being poured into this, uh, initiative. And it does kind of look like asymmetrical warfare tactics. Um, you know, I can't prove that that's what it is. I'm not in the military on either side, but, um, but yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on some of that because it, I, that is one of the things that, you know, it, this is just my speculation. I, again, I can't prove it, but it does look like Q, uh, you know, whether it started out genuine or was a, a psyop from the, the get-go, um, you know, it looks like a lot of the, it was very successful. We'll just look at the results, regardless of the intention, yeah. very successful at reviving a lot of the anti-Semitic tropes uh, that were, had been proven to be intelligence ops, uh, you know, in the past. Right. in various countries and it revived some of those and it promulgated through the right which is very effective because you know it was uh, traditionally uh more on the left but now you know they they've successfully uh turned particularly the uh, you know dissident right-wing media into this uh you know i hate israel campaign so which is a little uh, no, I agree with you. Actually, <laughs> I, I strongly suspect that your analysis here is correct. I don't know what caused October 7th. I don't know um, sure. if that was an intelligence failure, if that was, um, so to speak, allowed to happen. I know that those ideas have been floated. Um, yeah. I know that there are, are reasons that, that neither of those claims is ridiculous. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, I agree, um, but I don't claim to know what, what happened there. I immediately called the entire thing Gaza Floyd because I knew that Israel would react the way that they, um, in some sense, were entitled to react, which is to flatten Hamas. And there would be massive damage to Gaza, which would then be held out as the cause celeb of the left. And then the left wing money and operation would be poured into that. Uh, It doesn't look like it's actually worked out in their favor overall. The entire Harvard scandal, for example, is downstream of that uh, directly. And um, it's not very popular. I find very few people support it and very many people are angry about it because of the tactics they've used and because it still remains um, shocking to the American conscience or to the Western conscience to watch that kind of thing happen here. Um, Whereas many of the pride things were not as were not shocking enough to the to the average Western or American conscience, this, uh, this got people's attention. And so I think it's largely backfired, but I do think it was an operation. Gaza Floyd is the name I've given it as a matter of fact, to uh, advance the revolution because the issue doesn't matter. Palestine doesn't matter to these people. The issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution. As a matter of fact, I mean, I would go so far as to say if the revolution were to succeed, they'll, they'll eliminate Hamas themselves because they don't need people like that in the program. Um, They, they'll cook up some pretext and literally glass Palestine if they have to, they don't care. Uh, They're Mm -hmm. not on the Palestinian side whatsoever. They're on the, as the guy, I forgot what university recently said in a talk, the goal is to deliver the most fatal blow to global capitalism that's possible. And so I see it as as an operation of the global left, primarily, uh, whether that's opportunism 
off of what happened organically on on October 7th or whether it was manufactured October 7th was manufactured itself in order to do that uh right. I don't know I don't claim to know I'm not going to make a guess but I do think it was an operation which I refer to as Gaza Floyd I think it's actually a stepping stone to another operation that will come so we've had critical race theory then we had this sort of uh critical Palestine theory and then I think or critical Israel theory I guess maybe and then what we're going to step into is a and I think this is the coming wave over the probably summer after some incident is a is a shoe drop to get it started, will be a critical immigration theory that retools. They already have a Wikipedia page. Oh yeah. Well, oh yeah. Okay. That is, yeah. There, um, and I think. Uh, oh, sorry. I bring this up all the time, but uh, I point out this book because the second half uh -huh. of it talks about the Islamification of the West. Yeah. as a intentional strategy to tear down the West. So I think um, that it's going to go beyond that, though, and it's going to be like this whole immigrant thing is going to be mm -hmm. a global CRT, and it's going to be used to advance the idea of universal human rights and global citizenship and to tear down the idea of national citizenship, national identity, and borders. Um, and they are, they are importing the class struggle necessary to have that into Western nations. And the there will be some kind of a nasty incident. I think that they attempted it actually with the kids that they just found had drowned in the river. Um, and there'll be some kind of a nasty incident that looks very horrific on the news, creates a reflexive environment that we have to take care of these immigrants, even though they're illegal. And no human is illegal is the narrative, of course. And they're going to push this thing and try to do a massive divisive uh in environment. Um, I've, for whatever set of reasons, since they're coming across the Mexican border, I'm referring to this as Operation Jorge Floyd. Um, <laughs> I've kind of got a pattern to it, uh, how I name these operations. But I think that that's likely to come and that's going to be the big, the next big push. And it ties, that one's fruitful for them because it ties into their climate change narrative. The reason that they have to be uh, migrants or refugees and they're claiming asylum status is because of the ravages of climate change. And so they're always looking for their stepping stone back to the climate agenda because the identity politics is making everybody mad and it had a limited shelf life, but their power is virtually eternal and arbitrary forever off of the environmental uh, program. They just can't get people to swallow it. So Operation Immigration, uh, Critical Immigration Theory or Operation Jorge Floyd will blend into or bleed into, I should say, the the climate agenda and it will fail, but they think it's going to be, a, I, I would guess they would think it's a, a stepping stone in the direction that they need in a way that CRT and and these other things have not been. Um, I don't think that, I actually at this point don't think we're ever going to buy the climate change scam at all. I think that ship Good. failed and it's not coming back. Good. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that is true. Um, well, I will just say in response to that I, I agree with you that that's where they're going to go. It's all about creating the global citizen, you know, tearing down all of the national borders. Um, but in this book, they kind of they set the stage because the first half is what everybody is kind of talking about now is like, you know, how the Fabian set up the outpost for uh, the British military uh, industrial complex for them in uh, to, when they set up the state of Israel. You know, they talk about the Balfour mm -hmm. Declaration, mm -hmm. all that. But then the second half talks about how the other angle was to come through and because it's all pointing toward their goal, which was to what they call create what they call the internationalist uh, world order, socialist mm -hmm. world order. Uh, and that was their goals. And they said that, you know, creating the Islamification of the West was very beneficial to that. 
you know, so it was, and it creates this perfect tensions as well, which advances their depopulation as well as, you know, their, uh, you know, control, uh, their, their opportunity for usurpations of power. But then it makes sense that from there, well, of course, if you're vying for that, then it's a natural extension to just, uh, you know, say that, you know, it's, it's all immigration needs to be, which is really just the, the erosion of any kind of boundaries and borders, which seems to be where they want to go with everything. So, yeah. Um, well, I've taken up a lot of your time. I know you need to run. Um, so I'm super grateful. Thank you. If you have anything else you want to add, please do. And of course, tell everybody where they can find you if you want to be found and all that stuff. <laughs> no, I think we covered it really well. Um, you can find me. My website is New Discourses, which is at newdiscourses.com. And you can find me on social media at Conceptual James, uh, where I'm probably doing something that I shouldn't be doing and should be writing and working anyway. Um, <laughs> but come find me. Uh, apparently, I break uh, open some some stories and provide context that can move the ball sometimes, as we saw with the NACs, which is great news. Um, so uh, thanks for letting me come talk about it. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks for everything you do. Yep. So, thank you all for listening and watching. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.